The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So please open your Bibles. This is God's message directly to you. We are going to be going to Acts chapter 9, verse 19. As you're turning there, I want you to remember for a moment some of the most significant times in your early relationship with Christ. Times that helped you, times that encouraged you in your walk, and times that caused you to be more faithful and more diligent and more wise and more committed to Christ. Today, We are going to discover the early Christian life of Paul, and we're going to dive right in because we have a lot to explore. So follow along, starting in verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenist Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, today we come before you recognizing that we are typically unthankful people. We are typically people who go about our day experiencing blessing after blessing without looking heavenward and declaring thank you. God, we ask that today as we consider your word, we would be filled with joy. We would be filled with a recognition that Jesus has done much on our behalf and we would be given instruction about how to live out our life in accordance with the word of God. And God, I ask as we see the example of Paul, you would help us to be made more aware of areas in our lives where we are not yet where we should be and that you would cause us to be more convicted to be faithful to the task that is set before us. Help us to be a church filled with Christians who are committed and zealous, and that we would be a church full of a united front, that we would be faithful to one another, serving the body rightly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our approach this morning to the text is going to be very loosely structured. In fact, we're simply going to walk through the text together so that we can understand some of Paul's early walk with Christ, but 
Before we do, I want to give a few preliminary observations. First of all, this text is very light on theology. There's nothing here that is controversial. There's nothing here that is difficult to understand. In fact, this might be the most straightforward passage that I have ever preached. However, that does not make it void of wisdom or guidance for our lives. So as we do a running commentary, I'm going to occasionally pause and I'm going to offer throughout the course of this sermon eight specific applications that we can take away from this text. And for those who enjoy taking copious notes, which I know there are a few, please know that the best way for you to outline this in your notes will be to just simply mark down applications one through eight as we arrive at them. Secondly, you may notice here that Luke gives very little specific detail which is odd for Luke. Luke is one of the most detailed writers of the Bible. He likes to give names to individuals and places and times and specific details. However, he does not name anyone who helped Paul. He doesn't give any specific apostles that met with with Paul in Jerusalem, although we know that from other places. In fact, Luke skips over roughly three years of Paul's life entirely in the middle of this passage. And the reason for that is twofold. First of all, because Luke was not with Paul at this time. Luke was not traveling with him. Later on in the book, you will see that often Luke will write we as he is talking about their travels, and occasionally he will write I or he. And when that takes place, we get an idea of exactly when Luke was with him and when he was not. At this time, Luke was not yet with Paul. Secondly, there's not a lot of detail because Luke was only chronicling the major events of this 30-year period that we call the book of Acts. So the things that take place in this early ministry of Paul, he only highlights the most startling of these events. However, this portion of Paul's life and ministry were very significant to him. And we know this because Paul refers to it on multiple occasions throughout various parts of the New Testament. So part of what we are going to be doing this morning is attempting to fill in some of the gaps here that is not present in Luke's writing in the book of Acts and draw in from other parts of what Paul tells us of his early Christian life from the New Testament. And as a final preliminary observation, I simply want to remind you that Saul is the Jewish name and Paul is his Roman name. He does not change his name. They are one person. And I want to remind you of this simply because this morning I know I am going to regularly call this man Paul, even though the text is still referring to him as Saul. So please uh, excuse my natural tendency to go by my habit of calling him by Paul. So with those thoughts in place, let's now examine the precious word of God together, starting again at verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Damascus is widely believed to be the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. In fact, if you just go to Google, I tried it, and type in oldest city in the world, it immediately shows up with Damascus. And at the time of Paul, the city walls that were there were probably already between 1,000 and 1,500 years old. And Damascus was a thriving metropolis because it was at the nexus of multiple large trade routes and because it was highly defensible and easy to protect yourself. And within those ancient walls, there was a large Jewish population and scholars estimate that there were around 30 synagogues outside of Jerusalem and Rome. This is probably the largest Jewish fellowship and community of that time period. Now remember that Paul had come from Jerusalem carrying letters to the leaders of the synagogues that gave him the right to speak 
and to have authority in their congregation. And his intention had been to wield that power to arrest the Jews that had become believers in Jesus Christ and thought that he was the Messiah. But now the persecutor of Christ walked into those synagogues as a preacher of Christ. Now application number one, use whatever platform God has given you as an avenue for sharing the gospel. Notice that Paul doesn't just cancel his speaking engagements now that there is a transition in his walk with the Lord. Notice that he instead, Luke tells us, walks in and preaches in the synagogues and that began immediately after his salvation. Immediately following your salvation, you probably know very little about Christ. I think Paul knew very little about Christ. It is important to understand that he had not yet become the world's greatest theologian. He was what we would now call a baby Christian. The only time that he had ever spent directly with Jesus was when Jesus had shown up in one short conversation on the road to Damascus, albeit a quite intense and impassioned one. That was the only direct communication he had had with Christ. The only theological training that he probably had was from his friend Ananias who had shared the gospel with him. He was what many people now call a newborn Christian. Even so, it seems that he already had this fiery zeal and a passion for his evangelism that he would later describe in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 this way. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That began not 30 years after he became a Christian, but it began the day he became a Christian. And he began to be filled with this zeal and this passion to proclaim Jesus. One of the commentaries that I was reading this week shared this little fact. He said, this is how most Christians start. This is how most Christians begin. And they have this mindset that always goes the same way. This is easy. And then eventually this is hard. And then eventually this is impossible. And the problem is typically when they reach that level of realizing sharing the gospel and changing people's hearts is impossible, that's when they stop. That's not what Paul does. Rather, Paul, from this point forward for the rest of his life, is going to realize that Christ and Christ alone can save, and his job is to just proclaim it to anyone that will listen. We can say that we are excited about Christ. We can come here and we can sing to Christ. We can come in a room where there are no detractors and declare the glory of God out loud, verbally and loudly, Because we have freedom to come here and to smile and to raise our hands and to worship the Lord in song. But when you go out there, that is when the rubber meets the road. And that is when you get a real sense of how much zeal you actually have for the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you need to go to work tomorrow and stand on the top of your desk and begin shouting out that Jesus is Lord. I'm not saying that you should even do that. Rather, I am telling you that like Paul you can use whatever sphere of influence you already have to begin proclaiming the good news of Christ. Use whatever position of authority and position of communication and community that you already have to open dialogue about the gospel. I was so encouraged yesterday when one of the members of the church was texting with me and he told me that he was recently convicted in his soul that he had not been sharing the gospel well at his job, and that he was going to be searching for new avenues to faithfully proclaim the gospel to his colleagues. That gives me joy. That is an indication of spiritual growth. Paul certainly did this. And he went in and it resulted in a great deal of confusion in those synagogues. Verse 21 says that all those who heard him were astonished and asked, 
Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? One time when I was at seminary, I took a class. Uh, It was called something like Applying Puritan Spirituality in the Context of the Modern Evangelical Church or something like that. And I walked in and it was one of those one time a week classes, you know, those three hour long kind of things where it's like Wednesday night, that's all you've got to do. And then uh, you come back the next Wednesday and sit for three hours. And I, I went in and I listened and I was following through with the syllabus that I had printed out. And I was, I was trying to figure out what in the world is going on here because the professor went on for about an hour and a half about pre, pre-Socratic philosophy of the Greeks. And I began to realize with this sinking feeling, I don't know if I'm in the right place here. Um, and eventually when we got to the halftime point where we had a break, I walked to the professor and I asked him, what class is this? And he says, this is... Um, this is Greek philosophy in the modern evangelical church. And I said, oh, well, great. I loved the class. I transitioned into it, but it was very awkward and confusing because I wasn't sure I was hearing the right guy. Well, that's probably what all these people in the synagogue felt like. Am I hearing the right guy? Is this really Saul? Who are you and what have you done with this man? And so when they are listening to Saul, they are confused, completely astonished. Wait a minute. This is the opposite of what we expected to hear. Perhaps that's what will happen with you when you begin sharing the gospel. Application number two, your testimony is one of your greatest tools for evangelism. Paul was enraptured by the love of Jesus. You can see that immediately, that this man that he was persecuting, this man who came to him and said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, had forgiven him. And for that, Paul would always love this Messiah, this good king, this one that he is now proclaiming to be the son of God. He was immediately filled with that awe of God and that passion for God that never faded. And the gospel gripped his heart. So he spent the rest of his life growing in delight of Christ and sharing with anyone that would listen to him. One of the things that Paul often does, we actually see it three times in growing detail. Each time he does this, it grows. In the book of Acts, he shares his testimony. The longest testimony is the last one that he shares. You would think that would be reversed, that as time goes on, he would fade and have less detail, but rather he continues to constantly proclaim it. When you become a Christian, there is a radical transition that has occurred. Something is radically new in your life and it should be noticeable to the people who are surrounding you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says that you are now a new creation. Colossians 3, I'm sorry, 1, 13 through 14 says in this way, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This salvation reorients the goals of your life. Your passions are made new. Pastimes that used to give you pleasure, you now find those things absolutely repulsive. And conversations that used to make you laugh now make you cringe. Things that used to make you angry now fill you with joy. And things that you used to find boring and dull are the very truths that you now find life-giving and joy-producing. Even if you were already a nice person, you are now a loving person. Even if you were a happy person, you are now a joyful person. There is a difference and the world can see it. And Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here's the deal though. They can't unless they know why there is a change in your life. They cannot give glory to your Father in heaven unless you tell them that he is the one responsible for the change in your life. So share your testimony and give a reason for the hope that is within you. As a side note, 
uh, please join us for Wednesday, for that is what we are going to do. We are going to hear the testimonies of people who have been redeemed, and we are going to rejoice together in seeing what God has done. Now look again at your copy of the scripture, starting at verse 22. It says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Please notice here that the power Paul had was not political power. In fact, his earthly influence was waning because of his efforts here. The power being referenced is not physical or societal, it is spiritual power. And in particular, this power seems to be linked to his ability to understand and see Jesus in the scripture. I say this because the only way Paul could quote unquote prove that Jesus is the Messiah was by arguing to his Jewish brothers that their only source of authority at the time, which was the Old Testament. They would not have accepted any other argumentation. There was nothing else that could prove it to a synagogue. And it seems that his arguments were persuasive to the point that his opponents were baffled and unable to give an answer. Application three, apologetics can be helpful. The art of apologetics simply means using reason and logic and science and history and evidence to defend the Christian faith. In particular, arguments can be helpful in showing someone that they are standing on theological quicksand and philosophical weak spots and that they are standing, and we are standing rather, on solid, consistent beliefs. However, knowing how another person thinks and understanding their perspectives is not all that is required. It can be helpful and it can be a good step in answering their specific objections with solid evidence but notice it doesn't actually change anyone here in this church. Application number four, apologetics can only convince the mind, but your arguments cannot change the heart. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Nobody could argue with Paul. We see later on that he is clearly a bright man. He is a brilliant-minded genius. And some scholars believe that if he had remained as a Pharisee, he would have eventually been the greatest Jewish philosopher of all time. I still think he probably is. He just is not counted by the unbelieving Jews to be one of them any, any longer. Notice here that nobody could argue with him. So instead, they determined to do exactly what they determined to do to Christ, to assassinate him. They literally stationed armed hitmen at every gate around the city in order to ensure that he didn't escape. And you can preach the gospel clearly and faithfully, and you can even use apologetics and have the best answers to all the hardest questions, and still, you might find yourself with a newfound enemy rather than a convert. To those who are being saved, the message is the scent of life unto life. But to those who are perishing, the message is the aroma of death unto death. So don't rely on your debate skills or your wits or your winsomeness or your powers of persuasion to manipulate or cajole or convince or woo people into the kingdom. You can't. God alone can change the heart. So preach the gospel faithfully and pray that he will give ears to hear. Now you may notice in verse 23, it says that these things take place after many days had gone by. Now, Paul elaborates on exactly how much time had passed and where he had been in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Let me read that for you now. It says, but 
by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. I'm sorry, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Just like Moses and Elijah, Paul was led by the Lord into Arabia to prepare for great ministry on the horizon. What Luke is calling Arabia in this passage was also known at that time as the Nabataean kingdom. This is important because Paul gives a little bit more robust account of this narrow escape from Damascus in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. He says, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands." The Nabataean kingdom did not control Damascus. It was not one of their cities. So this is very odd that one of their governors was sent at the pleasure of their king to lock down the city. And when we combine this with Luke's account in the book of Acts, it's clear that the Jews were working alongside this king for the purpose of snuffing out the gospel. So some scholars believe that the Jews had even paid King Eratos to send someone to ensure that Paul was eliminated. But that's not clearly expressed in scripture, so that might not be the correct way to connect the dots. Either way, what we do know is this, Paul had certainly angered King Eratos somehow. Kings usually, I mean, let's face it, in that day, kings were okay with killing people, right? But rarely did they send their own governors to very openly walk across borders to find someone who is not one of their own citizens and assassinate him in a foreign country. Rarely did somebody go that to that extent and risk political destabilization unless they are very angry. Now, I find this interesting, and I think it can help us to defog the mysterious Arabian years of Paul's journey. Many people speculate that what he was doing there was just studying for three years. In fact, I have heard people say this is one of the arguments for seminary, that Christians must go to seminary if they're going to become pastors, because even Paul went and studied for three years. I don't find this to be a good argument, and here's why. I suggest that the anger of the king indicates that Paul must have been doing more than sitting in an ivory tower and reading books. I think that Paul must have been proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles of Arabia. This would have been illegal, and it would have been, as we see regularly taking place in Paul's ministry, societal uproar would have followed it, complicating things for the local magistrates. And the local magistrates hate for their lives to be complicated. So as we see often in Paul's ministry, it infuriated the rulers. And so this king takes part with the Jews in order to find a way to kill Paul, which leads us now to verse 25. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Paul had been in the business of hunting down Christians, and now the hunter has become the hunted. But thanks be to God that Paul was not alone. He had a group of unnamed friends who saved his life by lowering him down in a basket through the old ancient walls of Damascus. Winston Churchill has a lot of famous sayings, and one of those that, that he has stated was this, nothing in life is so exhilarating as being shot at without result. Now, you could look at this and say, man, this was a really daring moment. 
This was exciting. This was like an adventure. He was escaping through the wall, but that is not how Paul would remember it. Remember that passage we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 11 when we were reading about King Eratos being involved in the assassination attempt? I want you to see exactly how he couches this story. Exactly why is he sharing that with them? Exactly why is he presenting this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? This is the verse that directly precedes what we just read. He says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. And then he shows that he was clandestinely lowered down through the wall. In other words, Paul is using this example of being lowered in a basket as the pinnacle of his own weaknesses. But the point of this moment in Acts chapter 9 is that Paul was able to survive a mafia-style hit because he had faithful friends at his side who cared for him. These faithful anonymous believers are a big part of church history, if you think about it. Paul, who became eventually the greatest church planter who ever lived, started most of the major churches of the ancient world. This man wrote 13 books of our New Testament. This man became the greatest theologian in world history. And this man, his life was saved because of a few faithful brothers and perhaps sisters, we don't know, who said, come to my house, we'll sneak you out. Do you realize that if they would have been captured, they would likewise have been killed? They would have been taking place in helping this man escape, and they would have likewise lost their lives. This begins the great tradition of what theologians call the Pauline circle. Paul was always surrounded by fellow believers who faithfully carried out the mission of Christ. We have a lot that we see just in this book. We have them all over the New Testament. Luke, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, Silas, Epaphroditus. That's just to name a few. There are over 50 people in the New Testament that Paul writes about serving alongside him faithfully. Romans 16 is like the closest thing that we have in our Bible to a church directory. I mean, this is an incredible reality that Paul was intentionally close to the people who were surrounding him. And this is significant because if the greatest Christian who ever lived had the need of this kind of community and this kind of fellowship and this kind of encouragement and this kind of assistance for ministry, then so do you. Application number five, serve one another. When I first began attending North Shore Baptist in 2008 over in Bayside, Queens, I knew there was something special about that church that felt very different from any other congregation I had been a part of in the past. And it took me several years to put my finger on exactly what it was that was so unique about it. But eventually I realized that one of the ingredients that made that place so special, and I think something that we have, by God's grace, been able to bring here with us, is that I have seen God working out simply this. In most churches that I've been a part of, people do not view the church as their primary community. Usually, their tier of community looks something like this. You have your nuclear family, and then you have your larger family, and then you have your colleagues and coworkers, and then you have your old high school buddies that you hang out with sometimes, and then you have some folks that you occasionally go fishing with or spend your hobbies with, and then you have the people of the church. They're like level five or six on your list of the people that you find as your primary community. But that is not the way that the Bible displays Christian community. As Pastor Jim mentioned last week, there is something very special and something closer between believers than even a familial bond. We share an experience as we have both been redeemed and restored by the same Christ. We are true family because we have been adopted into the same family of God. We are true neighbors because we have been bonded together in an eternal love that was given to us. 
We share in a kingdom as we have been transferred out of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, meaning that we are citizens of the same kingdom. So we have more in common with people who are Christians, who are part of a country that you can't even pronounce the name of on the other side of the world than you do with people who are your neighbors, unbelieving here in the United States. We share also in an inheritance, Jesus Christ himself. We share in a hope of eternal glory. We share in our goal of advancing God's kingdom. I could go on all day about things that cause us to be more closely connected and related than anyone else in the world. I could just continue on over and over and over through every page of the New Testament. But many Christians don't desire and certainly don't put the effort into sharing their lives with one another. All of these spiritual realities are true, but the physical and temporal time-taking elements and things that require effort tend to be left behind. When we have a trial, a difficult circumstance in our life, we often go, we don't go to the church first. Rather, we go to unbelievers and we go to them for commiseration and sometimes even for counsel. And when we have a need, we should take it to God first and then to the church second and then to our others next. But usually we reverse that order. Paul would later call the church members of one another. Just like the body needs eyes and fingers and spleens and Livers, right, Rocky? So the body of Christ is designed for the church to operate with all of its members, caring for and loving one another and working together with one another. Going to church and being anonymous is a foreign concept in the pages of scripture. There is no example of that in the Bible. Attending a weekly service but not taking part in the lives of the church people is the invention of an overly busy people of the modern world prioritizing the cares of this world over the fellowship of the church. You are responsible and called to serve one another. Now, you won't be saving lives every day in the sense that you're going to be doing what these people did, lowering Paul through the wall. You know, I, 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 just as a side note, I, I wonder if this is just due to Paul's good knowledge of the Old Testament. Remember that the spies who came to Rahab, they were likewise lowered out through the wall. And then also David, when Saul was hunting him down, uh, Saul's own daughter, Michael, lowered him through the window of a wall and let him escape. I think maybe, maybe Paul knew those stories really well and thought this would be a good way. Please understand, though, typically your involvement in other people's lives won't look like something big. But don't underestimate the things that you consider to be small. Some of the most vital and helpful moments in my walk with Christ came about because some faithful Christian went out of their way to spend time with me and simply say a few encouraging words to me. Their words cost them nothing but air and a few minutes. But their words caused a great change in the course of my life forever. Perhaps you can look back at your early Christian life and say, what is it that was most encouraging and beneficial to you? And you might recognize that the things that that you say were so significant, actually looked quite small to others. Don't underestimate what it looks like that you are with one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another. These things are not little. Um, recently, someone in the church shared with me that they don't feel like they have much to offer. No, they don't, because none of us do. Zero people in this room were saved by God because he needed their gifts. No, God is the gift giver. He can give gifts to whomever he wants. We give of the little that God has given to us and he takes those things and he multiplies them and makes them of great value for the body. He makes them powerful. He makes them effectual. 
So use your gifts and give of your time, give of your treasure, serve in the church ministries, look for needs, find ways to meet them. And I just want to share that before moving on, just an illustration from the church this week. I was so encouraged because throughout the course of the week, there was a need that arose. There was a significant need that I couldn't meet on my own. And I just made this known to a small group of believers that are members of the church and shared with them what was going on just in brief, just took a few moments, didn't give much detail and said, there is a need and I'm asking if you would be willing or interested in helping to meet that need. And that need was not just met, but was overwhelmingly met. And I was personally overwhelmed with the way that they went above and beyond to meet that need and serve that individual with not only doing it, but having great joy not asking any questions, just ready to serve and ready to give and ready to do so with joy and fervor and thankfulness to take part in being the family of God and meeting a need. So please don't hear me chastising you here. I am encouraged to see that this church is growing in love for one another, but I want to encourage you to continue moving in that direction. Now let's jump back into the text at verse 26. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Imagine for a moment that you were one of these Jerusalem Christians, And as you were serving the Lord one day, you were worshiping the Lord, you were excited about the Lord, you come home to find that your spouse had been arrested by temple guards that were under the direct authority of this man, Saul of Tarsus. And for the past three years, you have not known where they are or if they are alive or dead. Now that these three years have passed, you have been discouraged and sad and you have been occasionally fighting the bitterness and anger that arises in your heart towards this man who intentionally persecuted the church. And all of a sudden, this man who devastated your life walks into your gathering to worship alongside of you. This man walks right in as you are singing and you are raising your hands and then you look beside you and there's a man singing and raising his hands that you know is responsible for this great tragedy that took place in your life. How would you respond? These people didn't believe Paul. They did not believe him. They were concerned that he was simply faking it while he was taking down mental notes about the names and addresses of these people so that he might continue his rampage against their own congregation. But then we see that this hero of the early church shows up once again, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He arises to stand up for Paul. Notice that he does not simply make a unilateral decision here. He doesn't say, well, I believe him, therefore he's in. No, notice what he does is the right thing. He takes him to the apostles so that they might hear him and make a judgment on the veracity of Paul's claims. Going back to Galatians 1, Paul expounds on this event by emphatically clarifying with whom he met. Remember, he he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is the name for Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And then he continues and he says, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, the reason he is saying this is to to explain that the gospel that he has is both in line with what the apostles taught 
and also that he got it directly from the Lord. Therefore, he is himself worthy of being an apostle. Last week, Jesus told Ananias that he would show Paul just how much he was going to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now Paul is experiencing the very first fruits of that suffering as he has been rejected by the Arabians. He has been rejected by the Jews of Damascus. He was originally and initially rejected by the Christians in Jerusalem. And that rejection just continues in Acts chapter 9, verse 29, which says, he talked and debated with the Hellenist Jews, but they tried to kill him. Now, as a reminder, the Hellenistic Jews were ethnically Jewish, but they had grown up in Greek-speaking provinces of the Roman Empire, and they had taken on the Greek language as their dominant form of communication. And remember that this is Saul of Tarsus, not Saul of Jerusalem. He was a Greek speaker, and he was from the outer provinces. And we know that he had a mastery of Hebrew, but we also know that he was a student of Gamaliel, and scholars find it likely that when Paul was being educated in Jerusalem, that he would have found his primary comrades to be made up not of the homeboys from Jerusalem, but rather made up from people, men who were like him, new to the city. He would not have fit in well with those you know, good old hometown folks that had grown up through school together and had known each other their whole lives, and now he is walking in as the new guy who's smarter than all of them. That would not have gone over well. Rather, it is likely that he was connecting and fellowshipping consistently with these Hellenistic Jews. So it is likely that the reason Paul began to evangelize this specific group is that they probably had been his close friends. Application number six, when you find Christ, people will reject you. I have heard my my friend and my mentor, Ed Moore, get asked the following question many times by new believers. They will ask, do I need to leave my old friends now that I'm a Christian? And I have always heard him answer that the same way. He will say, probably not. Probably not, because if you start following Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, they will probably leave you. And that seems to be the case here with Paul. He was rejected, and the people who used to identify with him were now seeking to exterminate him. Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Just last year, I preached Paul's words from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, which says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't find it strange if your unbelieving friends from your life before Christ begin to separate themselves from you. In Paul's case, their response was to do it to Paul, to do to Paul what they had previously worked together to do with Paul to the Christians. Now remember, he was vehemently searching out those who he could kill or or at least arrest. These guys were probably working arm in arm. He probably went home from his day at work and had his roommates there surrounding them and began talking about all the joyous ways that he arrested these people who are following the name of Jesus. Now they wanted him dead because he has become one of them. Verse 30, when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Later in Acts chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, Paul shares his testimony and he includes a little bit more detail about this particular escape from Jerusalem. He says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said to the Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by him and approvingly, uh, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So here we see that Jesus is warning him. He is telling him, get out. And this means that Jesus himself is the one who uncovered the plot, who declared the plot to Paul, and who shared this with the brothers who helped him escape without harm. At this point, Paul sails out of the pages of Acts, and he's not going to be back in the book of Acts for a couple chapters. But in real time, this is a period of about eight to 12 years where we have no idea what he is doing in his hometown of Tarsus. And notice that the persecution leaves Jerusalem with him. In verse 31, it says, Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in number. We have a couple more applications. Application seven, be faithful in either peace or in persecution. Throughout church history, God has allowed, for reasons only known to himself, for there to be seasons of peace and seasons of persecution. In the world right now, here in the United States, we enjoy some of the greatest freedoms any Christian community has ever encountered. But at the very same time, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are around the world who are currently experiencing some of the harshest and most fiery persecution that the church has ever seen. The great sin of the church at peace, which is where we are, is that we have become lazy and we have become unfocused. Now, I could spend a lot of time speaking about the American church or the church at large in the Western world, but right now I'm only speaking to this congregation. No, don't waste your freedoms. Don't waste the fact that you have the right right now to love the Lord Jesus publicly and openly. We have the freedom to pray and proclaim your faith in the public square. That is an uncommon privilege in the world. While we have the resources, let's use them for building the body of Christ here and abroad. And if persecution arises, let's pray that the Lord would keep us faithful to the end. Application number eight, beware of church growth methodologies. I have people reach out to me all the time by either mail or email or phone suggesting some new church growth strategy that could cause our church to explode with new people. I was actually just speaking to a pastor this week, a pastor who is a fellow church planter at a small church in Queens, and he was bemoaning a pastor's gathering that he had recently attended, and it was a meeting of mostly church planters, mostly guys that were pretty new to being pastors, and uh, many of these guys were meeting with just a handful of saints in their own apartments in, in the city. And the speaker who came, he came to share with them how to build a better church, was something, something like that. And the speaker who came only spoke about business principles and how many millions of dollars his church brings in and how much they have spent on building multiple buildings. And the pastor that I was speaking to said there was not even a hint of the gospel. The man spoke for an hour about how to make us grow our churches, and he didn't even mention Jesus or the Bible or evangelism. I want our church to grow. I'm glad it is growing. I'm thankful because every single person that comes in and is being discipled is an evidence of trophy, a trophy of grace for Christ. It's not because of us. It's because of Jesus. And I want you to know that I want this church to grow, and I want our church to make disciples. And as soon as we're able, I want our church to raise up leaders and plant a new church in a neighborhood that is currently lacking a gospel presence. But how are we going to do that? That question and the way we answer it is very important. Let's learn from the example of the early church. In his commentary, Derek Thomas summarizes the reality this way. He says, 
One wonders often about the secret of the church's growth and multiplication. Is there some secret formula? Is there a 12-step program that we can mimic and use to turn the ailing church around? The church in our time is fixated on programs with books and DVDs. Luke's formula is very simple. The people of God were, quote, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that is how the church multiplied. Brothers and sisters, may that be the foundation of our church growth strategy, that we would walk in fear of the Lord and that we would be filled with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Let me, let me conclude here with a reminder of what we've walked through so far, <clears throat> so far this morning. Just a quick recap. Application one, use whatever platform God has given you as an avenue for sharing the gospel. Application number two, your testimony is one of your greatest tools for evangelism. Application three, apologetics can be helpful, but application four, apologetics can only convince the mind. Your arguments cannot change the heart. Application five, serve one another. Application six, when you find Christ, people will reject you. Application seven, be faithful in peace or in persecution. And finally, application eight, beware of church growth methodologies. Let's ask the Lord to bless and remember, help us remember this as we go out today. <clears throat> Father God, we, we come before you recognizing that Paul's life and his early ministry is not exclusive to pastors or church planters or evangelists or theologians, but this is to be a common experience where we are filled with zeal and thankfulness, that we are so enraptured by the love of Jesus that we can't help but overflow with the glory of God and proclaiming his name. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability as we go into our regular workplaces, into our everyday lives, and even into our family gatherings this week, that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would be people who represent you well, like billboards in the world, proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Help us, Lord, to be like Paul in these ways. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see past Paul and see to your son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate helper, who is the ultimate giver, who is the ultimate one who has given us all that we need. And Lord, I pray that we would be so thankful that we can't help but proclaim his name. We pray all of this in the precious name of your son. Amen.